0: Good morning Eden Church, it is so good to be back, Um, it is great to be back with you all, I love this church. I feel like every time I I, I come here, I feel like I say the exact same thing. I'm going to say it again. Um, If I was in this area, I live in the East Bay now. But if I was in this area, Eden would be Eden would be my home church. I love this church. I love your leaders. I just have tremendous respect for you guys and what you guys are doing in this community. So it's such a great gift to be here. As Daniel said, my name is Philip. I lead Foster the City. Uh, I'm a pastor in the Bay Area as well. But um, Foster the City is something that that Eden's worked alongside for many years. In fact, Foster the City is a movement of churches and the Bay Area and beyond that are working together to provide loving homes for kids in foster care. Um, And it's been awesome. There's been hundreds and hundreds of kids that have been welcomed into uh, loving, stable, Christ-centered homes because of churches like Eden that are raising up foster parents, raising up support for foster parents. And I want to honor you for being a part of that. Uh, Now, I'm actually not here to talk about Foster the City today, Um, though. But if I could, just while I have a minute, let me tell you why I am so passionate about that. Vision, the vision of Foster the City, um, is because we believe that, that kids who come from really, uh, really hard places, uh, walk through really hard things, that they are not without hope for their future. You believe that? Um, and that's true for you too. And it's true for me, right? That, that our history doesn't need to determine our destiny. Um, that, that we can have hope for our future. That's actually what I want to talk about today. Um, I don't know most of you. I'm looking at this new faces here. I don't know most of you. I don't know most of your stories. But I don't have to personally know you to know you've made some mistakes in your life. Um, you've got some, maybe some junk in your past. We all do. Maybe you have some junk in your present. The question is, what do we do with that? The danger is that perhaps um, for some of us and for our marriages, for our relationships, for our individual lives, um, that we can be held captive by some of the mistakes that we've made in our past. We can be held by some of the mistakes and the, the, the struggles that we're dealing with right now in this moment. Um, and I think that what God wants to do today perhaps is to set us free from some of those things. Because what the, the, this, these things that have been holding us tight have been keeping us from moving into the life and into the relationships that, that I believe God intended for us to enjoy. Um, So, I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about that in hopes that maybe perhaps God would, again, release you from some of those and help lead you into the future that he's got for you. And what I'd like to do today is I'd like to center our conversation today around a guy in the Bible named David, okay? We're going to look at the story of David. Let me tell you why I want to look at David. Uh, I'm 40 years old now, which is crazy. I turned 40 this year. Um, You don't don't clap for that. That's that's nothing to celebrate. Um, But... The more that I have, I've been reading the Bible for a long time now. The older that I get, the more that I read the Bible, the more that I see the scriptures um, less as a textbook, less as some like book of instructions. Um, and when I, when I look into the scriptures now, oftentimes, if maybe more than anything, I see them as a mirror. Like I see my own story in the Bible. So I look at the story of David. Really what I, what I look at is I, I feel like I see my own story. Maybe your story too. Um, David, if you're not familiar with him, he was a guy that just really loved God. He, lo- he loved God. He pursued God. He um, yearned for more of God in his life. He devoted his life to the Lord. And yet he was also an absolute train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> He he was he was a guy who loved loved the Lord and was really busted up and broken. And that's me. I I don't think it's arrogant to say or I love Jesus. I I love the Lord. Every day I pursue him. I want more of him in my life. I've devoted my life to him. And yet I'm so broken. I think both of those things can be true at the same time. There's so much brokenness in me. In fact, there's no, there's no, they, they invited me to speak on, to conclude the series on messy. Uh, I just, it hit me as I was walking up here. I was like, the messiest for last. Um, in fact, guys, what I'm going to, what I'm going to share with you today, I just actually want to be really honest with you. This isn't all seriousness. Um, I want to share with you a bit of David's story. And we're going to look at some of the darker moments in David's life. And I'm going to share with you a little bit of my story. Um, some of the darker moments in my story. And so I do want to just, in all seriousness, let you know um, this, it's, it's going to get darker before it gets brighter in our conversation. And I know that there are some young ears here. Actually, just want to be honest with you, Eden has a phenomenal kids program. You might feel more, I'm, I mean, in all seriousness, you might feel more comfortable if your kiddos weren't Eden kids. I'm just to be honest with you. If you feel comfortable in here, that's, that's fine too, but I just want to let, let you know we might go a little PG 13 today. Okay? Forewarning. All right. Um, so if you have a Bible with you, we're going to look at the life of David. 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you want to go there with me, you can open that up on your phone. If you got, no worries. If not, you can look on here on the screen with me. Um, we're going to look together at David's story. And my hope is that you might have the eyes to see your own story in this. And as we watch how God responds to David in this story, that you might see how God might want to respond to your story as well. Um, As we look here at 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the prevalence of sin. We're going to look at the the power of repentance. And then we're going to look at the promise of grace. We're going to look at those three things. And if you're not familiar, maybe you're you're new to church, new to the scriptures. If you don't know who David is, um, this is the guy who fought Goliath as a kid. Very famously, David and Goliath. Right, So David fought Goliath and, 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 and as he grew older, he just God blessed him in all of these incredible ways and gave him all these opportunities. And in fact, he went on to become the king over the nation of Israel. And, he's, and, and that's where we're going to pick up our story today is when David has been king of the nation of Israel for a little while. And we're going to see what happens. We're going to see here right away the, the, the prevalence of sin, this first point here. Starting in verse 1, this is what it says. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David, one afternoon, is taking a nap, gets up, goes out on his balcony, just taking a stroll, looks down, sees a, a woman. You see that the topography of Jerusalem, is, it's hills, it's hilly, right? And so um, David's palace, the king's palace, was at the very most kind of tippity top. And so as he's looking over his balcony, he can see the roofs of all of the homes surrounding him. And so he looks down, he sees a woman, and she's bathing, and she's gorgeous, she's naked. Um, and so he, he calls over one of his buddies, one of his servants, and he points down and he says, Hey, who's that? There is a right time to ask that question, there's a wrong time to ask that question. I asked that question once. I was 16 years old. I was sitting in church just like you are today. My, I was sitting in, youth, in my youth ministry, though, and I sit next to a buddy of mine, and um, a girl about my age walked in, and I elbowed my buddy. I'm like, Dude, who's that? Um, and he's like, oh, that's a girl from my school. Her name's Jessica. And I'll forever remember that moment because that's the first time I saw the girl that would become my wife, right? Um, there's a right time to ask that question. There's a wrong time. This is the wrong time for David. Okay, David's married. But he asks, man, who is that? Tell me about her. So the servant looks and he says, David, can that, that's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's wife. That, that's not just anybody's, that's Eliam's daughter. You know, that, that person that's been faithfully, wisely counseling you for years, that's his daughter. That's the, that's the wife of Uriah, King. You know who Uriah was? See, after, after, after David defeated Goliath as a boy... He, he grew up and as he grew up uh, his, his fame also grew because of the, you know, the great things that he was doing and so his fame began to grow so much so that he was beginning to steal the hearts of the nation of Israel and the, then the current king at that time began to get jealous and so he started trying to hunt David down and so David would travel across the, you know through these different mountains and hide in these different caves trying to escape this, this king and as he did so all of these, these, these men started to come around David kind of rally around him like a small army if you can if you're a brave heart fan like I am like it's like William Wallace basically this is what happens like all these guys start flocking to him and they're hiding with him and they're they're sleeping on the ground with him and they're 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 bleeding with him they're protecting him Uriah was one of those mighty men David owed Uriah his very life if if David was William Wallace Uriah was Hamish um, so this servant is like king I, I see that look in your eyes like, that's, that's Uriah's wife. Like, walk away. But David doesn't do that, does he? You see, David's been primed for this moment. Um, he's been primed for this moment. He didn't just wake up from that nap that afternoon and say, you no, I think I'm going to go have an affair with my friend's wife. That's not how that happens, does it? I've been in ministry and had far too many conversations around this topic to know. That's not how that happens. There are all kinds of small compromises and small decisions that led him up to this moment. All kinds of small compromises in David's life that led him to this specific moment. David didn't collapse into this moment. He cultivated this moment. I'll just give you one example of that. David had seven different wives at that point. He had 10 concubines. He was in relationship with 17 different women, which we all know polygamy at that time wasn't that big of a deal. It was a pretty, pretty common, culturally acceptable practice at the time, especially for kings, kings took what they wanted. But that was not, that was not God's way for God's people. From the very beginning. Actually, in, in Deuteronomy, God explicitly says, "Kings are not to multiply their wives." From the beginning, marriage was meant to be between a man and a woman for life. This was not to be for God's people. But over a period of about 20 years, David began to take one woman after another, choosing what looked desirable and what culture said wasn't that big of a deal, rather than what God said was to be his way. We don't collapse into moments, we cultivate moments. And that's true for you and me as well, isn't it? That the small habits and the small decisions that we make today are leading us towards God or leading us away from God, are leading us towards healthy, strong marriages, or away from healthy and strong marriages. We, we may not be at this place where we would do what David did in that moment, or we would jump like that and, and make that kind of decision, but we're all on a trajectory. The small decisions, the small habits, the small mindsets that you and I have today are leading us towards becoming a certain people, having a certain marriage. It, this goes for every area of life too, of course, doesn't it? One donut won't wreck your physical fitness. But, a, but donuts every single day for five years, 10 years, it sets you on a trajectory. I know from personal experience. You think this happens naturally? Okay, I like got I had to work at this. <laughs> the same is true for every your life. I tell my kids all the time like, like one one day of just sitting and having like a really, you know, intense time of in God's word and prayer probably won't change you. That's probably not going to be what's going to transform your life. But if every day if every day you choose to make that a priority, you sit down for a few minutes you study God's word, and you spend some time interacting with him in prayer. You, you present the things that are on your mind and your heart to the Lord. If you do that every day, over year after year after year, that will change you. That will transform you. Um, if our habits are—the the question every one of us should be asking, by the way, in every area of our life, if our habits and our decisions stay consistent, the habits and decisions that I have today, if they stay consistent, where will I be in 10 years? We don't collapse into moments, we cultivate moments. And this string of compromises primed David for this moment. So what he did was he sent for her. And he took what he wanted, and then he sent her home. And, and by the way, you might be thinking, maybe go, go a little easier on the guy. Like, what was he supposed to do? I mean, here he is. Here is a, a woman just flaunting herself. Just completely exposed herself for all to see just, you know, may, maybe if she would have been a little bit more modest or showed a little bit more self-restraint, then maybe this never would have happened. Go easy on David. What was he supposed to do? Um, I actually read some commentaries that actually suggested that. Man, if maybe, you know, maybe Bathsheba is partly to blame for this. If she just would have shown a little more modesty, a little more self-restraint, you can't completely blame David. If she just would have shown some more self-restraint, maybe none of this would have happened. Can I tell you, I think that's a bunch of garbage. Can I just say that? Uh, <laughs> um, like, do, do you know what she was doing? It actually says in verse four what she was doing. It says that she was, she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. You know, the, in, in the Old Testament, God actually sets out this, this, this process in which you are to, to cleanse yourself, purify yourself after your monthly cycle as a woman. So do you know what she was doing? She was being obedient to God. That's what she was doing. She was being obedient. She wasn't out there flaunting herself. Now, listen, I know we, 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 don't, we don't go out and we don't, we don't, without self-restraint, you know, go out and flaunt our sexuality to tempt others. As I'm saying we, as if I could do that. You know what I'm saying? Men, that's better looking than me. Like, we don't, we don't, of course we don't do that, right? We have a saying around our house, modest is hottest. Okay, you can use that if you want. Modest is hottest. That, but that's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening the bottom line is that David was wielding his power. And I'm not, that's not even true. David was misusing his power. He was misusing his power and his position to take something that didn't belong to him. Again, the story doesn't explicitly say this, but you could see this as rape. This is Harvey Weinstein. This is Bill Cosby. Man, this is, this is you and me every time we objectify rather than protect Women. I know this is a, a little bit of a tangent, but I actually do think it's worth just saying for just for a moment. Um, th- there's a distinction on how we look at power and position in the kingdom of God. I feel like it has to be said here. True power in the kingdom of God is characterized by giving rather than taking. True power is, is it's marked by serving rather than dominating and defined by protecting rather than exploiting. That's true power in the kingdom of God. And that's not what we see in this king. Rather than protecting his people, he was at home ravaging his people. And for a few weeks, David thinks that he got away with it. He thinks he got away with it. But as we all know, there, there will always, always be a day of reckoning. I can't remember where it is in the scriptures, but there's this one verse that says... Um, that our, that our sins, our, our kind of deepest, darkest secrets will be one day be shouted from the rooftops. There will always be a day of reckoning. And after a few weeks, Bathsheba sends a message to David and says, I'm pregnant. So David thinks fast. He comes up with this idea of how he can possibly, just possibly cover this up. Uh, and so he sends a message out to the front lines, and he says, send Uriah back quick, under the pretense that he wants to get a, an update on how the battle is going. So Uriah comes back, comes into the throne room, gives David a message. Here's how the battle's going. David says, great, thank you for letting me know. Hey, you know what, it's a little bit late in the day. Why don't you go back home to your wife, enjoy some good food, some good drinks. Uh, be with your wife and then tomorrow then you could head back to the front lines surely he's thinking this man's been away from his wife for a long time he's going to go home he's going to sleep with her and then when he finds out that she's pregnant he'll just assume that the baby is his that's a pretty great plan right the problem is for david uriah doesn't go back home to his wife instead he chooses to sleep outside of the king's palace on the ground the next morning, David hears about it. brings Uriah in and says, "What the heck, man? I told you to go back, come to your wife. Why didn't you go home?" And 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 Uriah said, "Are you kidding me? Like my my men are out on the front line. Like they're sleeping on the ground right now. They're bleeding right now. Like how could I go home and enjoy my wife's embrace when my men are out there on the ground? Like where would my integrity be?" And so now David's up against it. Feels like his hand is being forced. And so he jots down a message, seals it, gives it to Uriah, says, go give this to your commander. Uriah goes back, has no idea that he's carrying his own death warrant. What he hands it to Joab, the commander. Joab is being told to put Uriah at the front of the battle where the fighting is the hardest. And when the fighting is at its most intense, pull back the army, but leave Uriah there. So Joab obeys. Uriah is killed. When David gets word that the deed has been done, he brings Bathsheba into his own home, makes her his wife, and they have their kid. He's coveted his neighbor's wife. He's stolen what hasn't belonged to him. He's lied about it. He's committed adultery, and he's murdered. That's half of the Ten Commandments in one fell swoop. It's... a uh, There's a danger when we look at a story that is so extreme like this. There's a danger that we would hold it at arm's length a little bit. And we'd be like, oh, man, that's, (laughs) you said that this was gonna be like looking into a mirror. This is not like me looking into a mirror. (laughs) Like, I'm a pretty good person. David just seems like a sexual deviant, a really twisted individual. It's too extreme. He, he's, he's, an, he's an outlier in his brokenness. But hold on. That's the guy who fought Goliath. This is the one person in the nation of Israel who would not stand by and let this giant of a man defile the name of our God. The one person and we're told, by the way, in that, in that story, when he goes and fights Goliath, he doesn't just come trembling towards the battle line. The Bible actually says that he runs towards the battle line, so eager to defend the name of his God. Guys, the, the, this, this, the city of Jerusalem is named after this guy. It's called the city of David. <laughs> the, 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 the Israeli flag today is, is blue and white and has a star, and it's called the star of David. Okay, This is the guy who wrote most of the Psalms that we still sing today. We've been studying and, and, and meditating on reflecting on for the last you know, thousands of years. This is the guy who wrote Psalm 30 that says, um, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. The guy who wrote that and meant that did this. The guy who is, def- who is described in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart did that. Do you know what that means? It, it means if he's capable of this, so am I. And so are you. If David has this kind of brokenness, and evil in his heart, then so do we. You don't have to be a Christian to know that that's true, by the way. G.K. Chesterton was a journalist in the 19th century. He said, he said the one empirically verifiable doctrine in the Bible is sin. The one thing you can prove without a shadow of a doubt, one, the one doctrine in the Bible is sin. All you have to do is open up a newspaper. Or our day... You know, turn on the TV or social media. Uh, Have you ever read the book Frankenstein? See some nodding heads. You're all familiar, probably, with the story. Uh, Mary Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. If you read the actual book, not the movie, but if you read the book, pretty fascinating. Um, So you're probably familiar with the story. Um, There's Dr. Frankenstein who creates this this being, this creature. We see it as a monster, but it actually didn't start out as a monster. Did you know that? It started out as this created being. It was innocent, it was kind, it was gentle, it was compassionate. Um, But after it was created and it was, you know, created in this specific way, this creature started reading human history and started watching how humans interact with one another, how we treated one another. And over time, this creature just began to get, like, bitter and jaded and disillusioned. And so there's this one moment, this kind of climax, where this creature, this created being, is talking to its creator, Dr. Frankenstein. And as they're having this conversation, he said something really fascinating. By the way, Mary Shelley, who wrote this book, is not a Christian. Okay? She is an atheist. This this is what the the, the creature says uh, to its creator. He says, when I first came into this world, I marveled at human beings. There could be nothing more noble and beautiful and godlike. But the more that I read of your history... And observed your behavior, my admiration ceased and I turned away in disgust and loathing. You seem to embody everything which at one point is godlike and at the same time everything that is vicious and base. All I can conclude is that you were created in the image of something that is perfect and you've fallen away from it. You don't have to be a Christian to understand. That something has gone deeply and profoundly wrong in the human heart. When we look at the life of David, when we look at his whole life, we see a life that is noble and beautiful and godly and inspiring. But at the same time, we also see something that that, that is vicious and base. And if that's true for him, then it's true for us. So what do we do with that? Like, where do, we, where do you go from here? Let's, let's look at the, let's look what happens next. And here we're going to see the power of repentance. Second Samuel 12, verse 1, it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan was a prophet sent by God uh, to go to confront David with what's just happened. Uh, and so Nathan comes to the palace, comes into David's throne room. David is sitting on the throne. One of, one of David's roles as a king was to be like a judge over the nation of Israel. He was to go and dispense justice. And so Nathan comes in and he comes before the king and he says, King, I, um, I have a case for you to hear. Uh, and so he says, I got a story. Um, he said, there's, there's two guys in your kingdom in particular that I need to tell you about. One of them is, is really rich. He's got all kinds of flocks and herds. He's incredibly wealthy. And then there's this other guy. He's he's poor. He actually only has one little ewe lamb. But oh, he loves this lamb. It actually ate from his table with him. He cuddles with it at night. It's like a daughter to him. He loves and adores this precious little ewe lamb. But listen, King. Recently, this rich man had a guest come and visit him. And rather than taking from one of his own many flocks, he went to this poor man, and he took the ewe lamb, and he slaughtered it, and he fed it to his guest. Oh, king, what should be done? What should we do? David was heated. He said, you're kidding me? D- who is does-, does this man think that there's no justice in my land? Is he gonna, does he think there's no justice in, in my kingdom? Who is this man? He deserves to die. Nathan simply looks at him and says, oh, king, you are the man. You are the man. I thought it's, it's kind of interesting the way that Nathan comes to David. I thought, well, if Nathan was, if, if God... Reveal to Nathan what David had done. Why didn't Nathan just come in to, like, kick the doors open in the throne room, you know, get in his face, point his finger in in David's face and just be like, I know what you've done. You you adulterer, you murderer. I know what you've done. He doesn't do that. He comes in and he tells him a story. Why? Why? Because Nathan is not there to condemn, he's there to convert. He's after David's heart, and so he comes to David in such a way that might actually open David's eyes to what he has done and possibly soften his heart towards repentance. I've heard somebody say it like this, Nathan wasn't coming with a sword to strike David down, but with a scalpel to do surgery. Both hurt, but one is intended to kill while the other is intended to heal. Um, I think this is important for us because this is how God's conviction with us is as well. I think sometimes we equate conviction with condemnation. Like we start to feel guilt over our sin, our struggles. We start to feel convicted about the brokenness in our lives. And we assume that this is God condemning us, wanting to crush us. God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. That's out of the mouth of Jesus. He, that's John 3. 7. We all know John 3.16. Keep reading. John 3.17 is just as good. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For, for God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Guys, that verse changed my life. I, uh, that's not an exaggeration, by the way. That's, that verse absolutely transformed my life. because David's story actually is my story. Um, about 15 years ago, I made a decision that hurt a lot of people. Um, almost cost me my marriage. Uh, my wife and I were in, in doing ministry in Florida at the time, South Florida, and we were, if you were to look at our um, life on the outside, uh, things looked pretty good. We'd been married for just a few years um, I was leading worship at a large church uh, we had started a, uh, a after school program for, for underprivileged youth um, I was also working at an organization that was planting churches all over the world thousands of churches if you were to look into my life you would have seen something that on the outside would have looked noble and beautiful and godly but if you were to look on the inside of my heart on the inside of my home all you would have seen would have been um, brokenness. Um, I was a workaholic. I was deeply, deeply insecure. I was so desperate for the approval of those who were around me and those who were above me. Um, I, I worked night and day so that I could keep trying to impress the people around me. I was so desperate to impress. Um, had no time for my wife. had no time for a relationship with the Lord. Um, after one compromise after another, after another, after another, I finally jumped and I launched into a full-blown affair. For almost a year, I led a double life. It was absolute hell. It was hell. And then one day I was sitting in church um, and somebody said that scripture, John 3, 17, God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I literally fell on my knees, and I started weeping. It's like, God, could it really be like this, this weight that I feel over my sin, this conviction that I feel over this life that I've been leading, could it really be that I'm not just sitting under condemnation, that you're not just waiting to crush me, but this conviction that I'm feeling might actually be you calling me into freedom. Could it be? I'll tell you more in a few minutes. Let me keep going. God's so good, though. so good this is what David heard when when Nathan called him to see his sin and so David responded and he responded and he said uh, he simply said just a few words he says I have sinned against the Lord full stop Full stop, I have sinned against the Lord. He just simply says, you're right, Nathan. I've I've, I've sinned. Because of what my wife and I have walked through, and we've kind of come out on the other side, we've now had conversation after conversation with others who have gone through something similar or who are, who are beginning to walk through something similar. And I can tell you one of the most like, telltale signs of whether or not somebody's going to come out on the other side of that is whether or not they do what David just did, and that is to just simply say, I've done it. I, you're right. I have sinned against the Lord. Full stop. I can't remember who said it, but um, somebody said, everybody I know has a big butt." That's in B-U-T, <laughs> okay? Uh, I got some laughs from the kids on that one. Um, <laughs> everyone, in other words, you're, you're right, Nathan, I have sinned, but, but you, you have no idea the pressure that I've been under. You, you're right, Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, but, but my, my wives, like, they just haven't been meeting the needs. They, they haven't been there for me. They don't respect me. They don't love me. They don't meet me where I am. You're right, Nathan, but, I mean, come on, like, she was right there. What was I supposed, how was I supposed to be able to withstand her seduction as I looked out over my balcony? The temptation was right there. You don't really expect me to be able to withstand that, do you? Responsibility is always required in repentance. So, again, I don't know what you're holding on to, if there's anything from your past or anything you're wrestling with today But have you been trying to justify or rationalize away the things that you're holding on to? You can't fix a problem that you're not willing to admit that you have. So David takes the full weight of his sin. He takes the full weight and he says, You're right, I have sinned against the Lord. But guys, let's see how how God responds. Let's see how he responds. We're going to see the promise of grace. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says back to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What? (laughs) What? After all that David has done? According to the Old Testament, David is supposed to die. Adultery, murder, those are capital offenses. But God says, David, I choose to forgive. I'm going to put away your sin. The phrase that, that, um, the phrase that Nathan uses here when he says that the Lord has put away your sin is used in another place in the Old Testament. I want to take a quick detour to another place in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. Stay with me here for a minute because this is how we can see how God can forgive and how he can still be a God of justice. Because in Zechariah chapter 3, we actually see uh, Zechariah the prophet, he has a vision. And Zechariah, in this vision that he has, he sees the high priest of the day, a guy named Joshua, go into the the Holy of Holies. He goes into the temple and he's standing in the presence of God. This happened like once a year. And when the high priest would go into the temple, they would spend the days leading up to that doing all that they could to purify themselves, consecrate themselves, so they could go and stand in the presence of a pure and a holy God. So they would confess all of their sins. They would clean themselves head to toe. There was this really elaborate process to cleanse themselves. They would go in like the most pristine white robes into the presence of a holy God. The problem is that in Zechariah's vision, Joshua has gone into the holy of holies, but he's not clean from head to toe. He's stained from head to toe. This vision essentially is showing us what we look like, even the best of us, look like in the presence of a holy and a pure God. What's worse is that Joshua is not standing there alone. Satan is standing right next to him. Condemning him. Pointing out all of his mistakes. Pointing out all of his sins. And Joshua is just standing there with his head hung low, knowing Satan is right. He deserves to die. Do you know what God does? In Zechariah chapter 3, he basically silences the mouth of Satan and he says, I am putting away your sins. He says, Get these filthy rags off of him, clothe him with robes of righteousness. And in the end of chapter 3 of Zechariah, he goes on to say how he can do that. He says, Because um, I am sending my servant. My Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And in a single day, he was going to put away the sins from this land. And, and he did. And that Messiah, that chosen one, his name is Jesus. On a single day, he took our sins upon his shoulders. And he took the punishment that we deserved. He took the justice that David deserved because of his sins on his shoulders. And he paid the price. He absorbed the wrath of God. Jesus paid the penalty for my affair. All all of it. All of it. Everything that led up to it. Everything throughout that whole year that I did. To betray my wife and to betray those around me. He took the weight of it on his own shoulders. He paid the price for my sin. And at the end he said, To tell us I, which means it's finished or more literally, paid in full. (laughs) didn't say paid in part. Paid for most of it, paid in full. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you know who wrote that? That's Psalm 103. David wrote that. David wrote that. God wants to put away your mistakes like he's put away mine. He wants to put away your sin. He wants to restore and to redeem what the, the, the junk that's been in your life that you've been holding on to. Will you let him? God is not done with you. He's not done with your marriage. He's not done with your relationships. He has a plan for your life. He can redeem. And he proves that with David's story. God looks down. This is crazy. This is crazy. God looks down on this marriage of David and Bathsheba. This marriage that was born out of deceit and destruction and sin. And he looks down on it and he says, I choose to forgive. But even more than that, I'm gonna bring beauty from the ashes. I'm gonna take the junk and the destruction that you did. I'm gonna bring something absolutely beautiful to this world. He gives David and Bathsheba another son. Do you know that? Some by the name of Solomon. And it is through this line that God chooses to bring Jesus to this world. is that crazy? <laughs> Out of all the marriages and all the kids, this is the line through which God sends Jesus. I want you to see this. Like, I, I don't care who you are or what you've done. He can take the darkest and the vilest of situations and he can use it to bring beauty and, and healing to this world. So will you let him restore and redeem you might be thinking, it's too much, it's too much, it's too much. Just by show of hands, just raise them nice and high. Anybody here just cheated with their best friend's wife and killed a friend to, to cover it up? Let's raise some hands nice and high. No? Okay. <laughs> that, means, that means all the stuff in your life, all the things that you think are so big are JV. Let's be honest. David is varsity, you're junior varsity. If, if, if God can redeem and restore David, he can do it with you. Tell, tell me again why he can't. Redeem and restore what's in your life. Can I tell you what this has looked like in my life? And I just will close with this. It looks like this here. Can I? We have a picture. There you go. See her? It's a little bit light. She's pretty cute, though, isn't she? Uh, that's my daughter. She's 11 years old. Her name is Gwendolyn. This is what God's grace looks like to me. I was looking at her this last week. And I was just thinking, um, this right here is God's concrete evidence of just his grace in my life. because I told you 15 years ago, my, apps, my marriage was dead. I'd killed it. Um, my day of reckoning came. My, my sins, my deepest, darkest secrets that I tried to hide from everybody were shouted from the rooftops. I lost my job. Uh, my wife and I separated. Everything came crashing down. I went from leading these incredible ministries. I became a janitor at a church. I just started, instead of having a microphone in my hand or a stage under my feet, I, I pushed a vacuum cleaner for eight hours a day. Did that for years. Um, my wife and I had uh, more hours of therapy and counseling than I can tell you, more <laughs> hard conversations and more tears than I can even describe to you. There were so many times we both thought about throwing in the towel, but we didn't. And it's because of stories like this. Stories that God showed that he can restore and he can redeem. You wouldn't, you wouldn't recognize our marriage today. Um, after years of hard work and rebuilding what I had torn down, our marriage was restored. And it hit me this week that... If, if we hadn't, if we would have thrown in the towel, if we wouldn't have trusted God to get us through this process, she wouldn't be here. Um, and uh, her, uh, her name is Gwendolyn Renee Patterson. Gwendolyn Renee. We didn't actually know this when we named her Gwendolyn Renee. Do you know what Gwendolyn Renee means? It means blessed ring reborn. is that crazy? And that's what God's done for us. Again, I don't know what you're holding on to. I don't, know that, I don't know what needs to be restored or redeemed and let go of in your life. But will you let him do it? If he's done it to David, if he's done it with me, he can do it with you, I promise you. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your grace. God, I pray that every person in this room across the, the, uh, those who are watching online today, um, God, I pray that you would, you would help us to be able to come to the hard truths, God, that there is both... Noble and, and nobleness and, and, and beauty and godliness in our lives, but there's also something that's broken that needs to be healed. God, and I pray that we would see you, we would see your grace that is available to us, that's been made available to us through Jesus, God, and that we would respond and we would receive it, Lord. Please, God, every single heart, God, I pray that it would be open to the areas where you need to address. God, I pray that this community, Eden, would be a community where we can be honest with who we are a place where we can go and not have to put on a show, put on a facade, and just pretend like we need, we need to be something or someone to impress. God, I pray that it's a place where we can find hope and healing in you and in one another. God, I just pray for your blessing. God, I got to pray for marriages today here at Eden. God, that marriages that maybe are, are struggling a little bit, or maybe there's some, there's some things that need to be taught through. God, I just pray for healthy, whole marriages. God, I, the things that seem like they are, they've, they've gone too far, they're too broken, they're beyond repair. God, that we'd be able to see what you are capable of. How you can take the, 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 the vilest and the most vicious situations and you can bring the greatest glory and beauty and life. God, bring beauty from ashes. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.